You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Johannite Church. You're talking about the Gospel of Mark and the Zodiac. Um, the book that I'm talking about is the Gospel and the Zodiac by Reverend Bill Darlinson from the UU Univer United, the Unitarian Universalist Church. And uh, it's an interesting book. I read through it. I was interested in the premise, and so I decided to do this presentation on it. Um, for myself, I am an esotericist and an occultist, uh, and I find a great deal of interest in these sorts of theories and tying together, especially since, as a priest, I am interested in the religious aspects, and the, the crossovers between them are always very pertinent to my line of work. Um, so, the basic theory... Let's see, where did I start? I started with the Zodiac. Okay, so I, I'm kind of assuming everyone sort of knows what the Zodiac is, but I wanted to go through it just because I wanted to make sure that we're all talking about the same things. It is an arrangement of 12 constellations in the sky which the sun appears to travel through throughout the year. Now, in ancient times and in modern times, it is divided equally into 12 signs. The actual constellations do not divide the year equally. They're bigger and smaller, and they move around. The stars move around, so the constellations change. So the sun doesn't actually stay in all of them for the entire month. And the months have different lengths. So it is sort of a, uh, a conceit. It's a model that's put on the sky rather than an actual astronomical phenomenon. Okay, so that's the first thing that's good to know. Um, each of these signs of the zodiac has a correspondence, or several hundred correspondences based on different things, the time of the year, uh, different attributes to which the time of the year is um, associated, and different uh, personality traits, colors, animals, plants, um, illnesses, body parts, all sorts of things. Each of the constellations also has a decan. Now in this context, a decan is another constellation which is associated symbolically with the one that the sun travels through. So, for instance, I will go through one in a little while as an example, but uh, the one that I know of for Cancer is Orion. Orion is a decan of Cancer, I believe, the crab. So, uh, I believe they, in mythology they fought together and there was a big hullabaloo that way. Uh, I also know the eagle ends up being a decan with uh, Scorpio. So that's the sort of thing that that is all about. So the zodiacs are associated, the zodiac signs are associated with the different four element, classical elements. Air, the intellectual sign, associated with Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius. Fire, Aries, Leo, Sagittarius. Water, Cancer, Scorpio, Pisces. Earth, Taurus, Virgo, Capricorn. So those different elements, which all have different symbolic meanings, are associated with these signs. And Air is for intellect, fire for will and for passion, water is for emotions, and the earth is for the material realm and the body. The zodiac has different modes. There's the cardinal mode, which means it's kind of a strong force. It's very direct and very focused. That's Aries, Libra, Cancer, Capricorn. So each of those has a different element. Aries is cardinal air. So it's a very direct manifestation of uh, sorry, cardinal fire, and it's a very direct manifestation of passion and will, very straightforward. The fixed signs, Leo, Aquarius, Scorpio, Taurus, fixed is more of a, a conservative sign, and they represent 
the element sort of in stasis. Um, fixed emotions, uh, a fixed fire would be a Leo who is always passionate, but to a certain degree, it's sort of fire restrained a bit. Um, they have a bit more direction to their fire, where Aries tends to be very much forward. Um, and the mutable signs, Sagittarius, Gemini, Pisces, Capricorn, they're the ones that are always changing. So they're the, they're the agents of change. Virgo. Virgo is actually mutable Earth. Mutable Earth. Capricorn. I got Capricorn twice. Uh, mutable Earth should be Virgo. So I missed that. Um, I talked about the sun position of the sky, so we'll move on. The Gospel of Mark is thought to be the oldest gospel. Uh, I believe it was thought to be written about 9080. Is that close? I don't know. I'm not a, the world's best biblical scholar. Gospel of Mark? Yeah. Uh, gospel of Mark is the earliest, and they, they, uh, they dated around the time um, to the destruction. So the 70, 70, 70, yeah. 70, to, 70 yeah. to 77. The last stuff I saw was suggesting around 70, 72. 72? Yeah. Okay. Well, either way, yeah. definitely the oldest of the Gospels that we have in a complete form. Definitely the oldest canonical Gospel. Now, there's a tradition which associates the Gospel of Mark with Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, Isuvius called Mark the founder of Alexandrian Christianity. And so we all know that Alexandria, throughout this time period and before, possibly before, possibly after, was very much the area where the Gnostic thought started coming into play. So it's very interesting that this is the area that the Gospel of Mark comes from as well, meaning that there's definitely a possibility there could be heterodox ideas which are included in this Gospel, as well as the orthodox ones that we're familiar with, or that some of us are. Uh, there's a scholar named Philip Carrington in 1952 who put forth the idea that the Mark and Gospel was structured around a Jewish yearly cycle. Uh, he has a long book, which I can't remember exactly what the title of it is at the moment. Oh wait, this is slide five, so I have it here. <clears throat> Let's see, his paper was The Primitive Christian Calendar, A Study in the Making of the Mark and Gospel. So he puts forth a very structured idea of this thought. <coughs> the Gospel of Mark is associated in 12 parts with the different signs of the zodiac, which the ancient world would have been familiar with. Um, Irenaeus is one piece of evidence that uh, Reverend Darlinson points to, saying that um, Irenaeus has a whole screed against the idea that Jesus only had a 12-month ministry, which is kind of borne out in the Gospel of Mark. And we don't know the length of Jesus' ministry. It's somewhere between a year and three years. Is that in counter heresies? Uh, yes, I believe it is. Okay. Uh, I'm not. I have the reference in here. I don't know exactly where. I know uh, Darlinson has the reference where in adversus heresies it is. Okay. So, Mark does not have an infancy narrative. It begins with the baptism by John the Baptist in the waters of the Jordan. So, it ends with the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb, but there are no supernatural appearances by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The, the uh, women come to the tomb, they see the angel who says, why do you look for the living among the dead? And that's the end. So, it makes it different than the other Gospels, which often bookend this story with the infancy narrative on the one hand, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus on the other. 
or in the case of Mark, a lot of theological discussion that isn't found in any of the other Gospels, or John, I'm sorry, in the case of the Gospel of John. Valentinus contends that Mark uses the Son's annual journey through the heavens as a metaphor for the interior spiritual journey. So, Valentinus is said to be the one who put forth this idea, and this is again in Irenaeus who's arguing against it. And he starts with Aries and says that as the sun moves through each of the houses, so should the soul progress through these different correspondences until it reaches Pisces, which is the end and the, the point where the crucifixion happens. And that's the metaphor that, they, that Valentinus puts forth. Uh, there's a, another uh, contemporary scholar in the 300s named, I don't know how to say it exactly, Papias, huh? Papias, contends the events were written accurately to the life of Jesus, but not in order. And this is a very strange thing for him to have said because most of the contemporary scholars think that the events in Mark happened in the order that they could have very easily happened with Jesus wandering around Galilee and Judea. He, I mean, it follows a certain path. So they think that the objection is to the order based on the sun, rather than the order of the events chronologically. That's what Reverend Darlinson puts forth. So, as an example, we're going to look at Aries. Uh, Aries is the only one that I have slides for. I'll take a look at a couple of other signs in between, and I'm just going to wing that a little bit. But. Aries is supposed to cover the section of the Gospel of Mark from verse one, chapter one of verse one to chapter three, verse five. The reason, no, okay. So Aries is said to have correspondences that relate to initiation, beginnings, leadership, urgency, and the head. Okay, these are some of the correspondences of Aries. Initiation, of course, relates to the baptism by John. Uh, beginnings, the kingdom of God is already here. That's one of the things about the urgency that is going on and about the leadership aspect of Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of God is here, so we need to be urgently repenting and getting our stuff together. The one of the miracles within the Gospel of Mark is uh, Jesus has a man lowered to him through the roof of a house and cures the paralyzed man. Coming through the roof argues Reverend Darlinson, is possibly a mention of the head because you're coming down from the top. So that is part of the evidence that he uses to tie this section of the gospel to the constellation of Aries. Now, the decans of Aries, as I mentioned, different constellations that surround it. Satus the sea monster was cast down by Perseus in the mythology. Uh, it's a little constellation that sits off to the side. Um, Perseus the hero is another constellation that's in this section. Cassiopeia, the princess, is also known as the woman on the rock. Okay, that's one of her titles. And all of this mythology goes that uh, Cetus the sea monster was supposed to have Cassiopeia who was to be sacrificed to him and Perseus came, killed the sea monster, saved him. That's how the myth goes. Satan is confronted in this section of Mark. There's the temptation in the desert, there's the declaration of the end of the kingdom of Satan, so the monster is slain. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees at one point, and he refers to himself as the bridegroom, and that is why the, uh, 
the disciples can follow him and do things that are different. You know, you, you do not wait upon the bridegroom, you actually deal with him while he is present with you. And that is a tie-in with Perseus, who was also known as the bridegroom of Cassiopeia in the mythology. So that's where that correspondence is supposed to come in. Peter's mother-in-law. Peter is the rock, and he is specifically called by that name. In the other Gospels, he's called Simon. In this Gospel, he's called Peter, and it is his mother-in-law whom Jesus comes in and heals, the woman of the rock. It's an interesting tie. Perhaps it's just my lack of background in this, but I'm curious how he links. I can see Satan and basically the um, uh, the monster monster being linked, um, but I don't understand the connection between the monster being cast down by basically slain by Perseus and how the temptation in the desert around with the declaration. I don't see how that actually forms a link. I don't even see them as well image, in, even in terms of imagery. They don't appear to be similar events. Well, the, the correlation I think that he's um, drawing here is the end of the king of Satan is the defeat of Satan. The destruction of the monster is the defeat of the monster. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the language that he's going with there, is a defeat of a monster. So it's and not I, correspondence, correspondence of the outcome of the event as opposed to the specific uh, sections of the event. I right. Okay. I think that's kind of more it is. It's a very broad <coughs> correlation and I mean I, I have a section on criticism of this theory a little bit later on so that's definitely something I wanted to, to get in. But this is basically the structure of Robinson's <coughs> argument which is there's a section of mythology that deals with this particular section of the year. He goes through a section of Mark and draws these parallels. One of the most striking is the um, one of the decan or Aquarius. The figure of Aquarius is towards the end of the cycle. Aquarius is a man carrying a jar of water. At this point in the Gospel of Mark, they send the disciples to go find him an ass to ride on so that he can ride in for Palm Sunday. And when they send him, he says, go and find the man carrying the jar of water. Culturally, men do not carry jars of water. It is very odd in a Semitic culture for men to do that kind of work. So that's why, first of all, it would be a symbol of something that they would see right away. But second of all, it seems to have a higher meaning, a different meaning, especially given its location within the gospel and the specificity of the imagery. So that's another thing that, that Darlinson ties together with his correspondence. Now, um, one of my criticisms of this is Scorpio. When he gets to the section on Scorpio, it's very short and it's very weak. The tie-ins are very, very weak for that being Scorpio. And uh, his argument for that is that Scorpio is the sign of sexuality, and it is the sign of various darker emotions, especially in the ancient world. So he, he lists what ancient authors say, say about the sign, and then he goes to show that those parts were probably excised from the Orthodox version of the Gospel, but the secret Gospel of Mark has portions that would fit in that place that would kind of tie into it. So it's an interesting argument. Again, I don't know, necessarily know that it's accurate. And I think that's what I had. Yep, blank slide. So um, other constellations that I wanted to go through 
all, I mean, there's 12 constellations, there's a lot of correspondences, and so it takes a lot of time to go through it. And I don't, my, my purpose here isn't necessarily to go in depth into this subject, but to kind of cover the, the high points. One of the biggest high points for me was Aries and the idea of the initiation. But the other point that he brings up here is the idea of a zodiacal age where he starts, and where he starts with this um, argument is, uh, let's see, the vernal equinox moves very, very slowly through time. It's slowly moving backwards through the suns, okay? And he says that when Moses took the Israelites and the Hebrews out of Egypt, the vernal equinox would have happened in Taurus, just at the very end of Taurus, which would have been the age of the bull. And there's a golden calf in Exodus that is cast down. And we institute the sacrifice of the sheep, the scapegoat, and the, the, the ram for the Lord. So that's kind of an interesting parallel there as at the end of that age. At the end of this age, at the end of the age of Aries, we have the baptism of Jesus, which slowly moves into the age of Pisces, Jesus' symbol being the fish. And he thinks that there is actually another layer of zodiacal meaning to the symbols of Judaism and Christianity, and you know the even the more ancient Babylonian religions. So, I find that an interesting argument. Now, the fact that zodiacal ages vary by something like an estimate by about 500 years makes me question whether or not it's actually true. But it's a very interesting argument yet once again. What does that mean for us having passed through Pisces into? Aquarius. Well, what are the correspondences of Aquarius? Aquarius tends to be intellectual, it tends to be reasoning, it tends to be a breaking down of structure, uh, it tends to be uh, an, a time of formation of new ideas, very much an intellectual time period. Online. Atheism, science, rationalism, <coughs> breaking down of older mystical uh, and ossified ideas, and an exploration of new ones. It, it makes a certain amount of sense, but again, the time frame is so long, it's hard to say that there's any firm evidence because we just aren't far enough into Aquarius to be able to make a true decision on it. Right. This, is, this is the dawn of the age of Aquarius. <laughs> <laughs> it could very well be. I'll let the sun shine. Um, I'm curious because I, was just, I just finished uh, one of Spong's books on Jesus for the non-Christian. He's talking in terms of the influences on the story of Jesus now, why he's not looking necessarily at the Zodiac specifically. He's talking more in terms of other traditions that has been born, have been borrowed from. Now, I'm sort of curious, given that you know a lot of the influences in Mark and things like that would probably be a, uh, more of a Judeo, you know, uh, a Hebrew influence. Is there a possibility that these are, you know? strictly symbolic things in terms of, not even necessarily in terms of the Zodiac, but just other references to other traditions and things like that. I know some of them seem a little uh, blatant, especially in terms of the Pisces and stuff like that, and I can't, I find myself wondering on that basis. But I'm just looking at it overall at a broader concept, because um, Spong was very, you know, compelling in what he was saying, that look, you've got to understand that this is uh, all imagery and stuff like that, it's been borrowed from a multitude of uh, traditions, blah, 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 blah. And he goes, some of these in, in images, while very deliberate, are also sort of more like using common language. So in other words, this is a common image that we use. Uh, you know, because it's, he said some writings, religious writings, especially at the time, were expected to correspond 
to a certain standard. Like, for instance, we see through medieval art, things had to be depicted a certain way. He goes as far as to suggest that within, especially within Mark and all that other stuff, that there is a standard of writing that needs to be considered for accurate interpretation. Now, he doesn't get into the specifics of what that standard would be. He simply mentions that some of the things that we would consider significant may just be more observing a standard at the time. And I'm just thinking, sitting here listening to this, mm -hmm. without you know completely discounting the idea, because it certainly is intriguing. Well, Reverend, Reverend Darlinson actually uses contemporary astrological references to make his correlations. So he's reading Ptolemy. And he's reading, uh, I think it's Marcellus or Mari Mariellus. I don't know. I'd have to take a look at it. But definitely, he's using contemporary sources, mm -hmm. astrological sources, to draw his correlations. So when he's talking about, um, you know, the the Aries relates to the head, mm -hmm. this would be common knowledge among the learned classes of Greek society. Mm -hmm. And you've got to understand, Alexandria, although this was probably written by a very devout Jew, because there's definitely references to Psalms, mm -hmm. he's definitely a Greek Jew. And mm -hmm. so he would know, if he's a learned Greek Jew, he would know about astrology, he would know about these correlations, simply because of the fact of where he lives and the environment that he works in. So yes, he's using a common language, that is very common, not only to the learned people in his area, but the learned people throughout the known world. Back to another idea by Bishop Spong. I, I've forgotten the book, but it's one of, one of his works, he mentions that, or postulates that the Gospels were written not as a record of historical things that happened in order, but actually as sort of a lectionary for the Jewish liturgical year. And I was wondering if there's any overlap between that idea and, and, and the signs of the Zodiac. I'm, I'm almost certain that Bill Darlington read the same book because he does make reference to the fact that this is, a ref this is an overlap with the Jewish zodiacal year and that a lot of the words that are used and a lot of the imagery that's used is specifically in a Jewish context, although some of it is definitely also Greek. Pursuant to that point, there's a book called um, The Astrologicalism of the Hebrew Sages by Rabbi Joel C. Dobin, which goes into um, Talmudic and I believe even earlier, um, specifically astrological uses of um, the system, which could give a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this is an interesting topic, and like I say, I have, I have just scratched the surface of it. There's definitely tie-ins across the ancient world with all of these ideas. So the environment that this is, we always think of this as being written in an environment where the person is living in a Christian community, but more than likely he's living in a very polyglot sort of community where he's got Greeks, he's got Jews, he's got you know Christians, and they're all talking to each other. And in the process of this, there's a lot of cross-pollination over the symbolisms that are being used. And especially if he's writing this as a gospel, as a tract, to try and bring people to his point of view, he's going to use the imagery that the learned classes know. And the, the, the imagery they know, the Greek zodiac, the mythology, he's going to use those symbols and bring it in there. And another thing that is pointed out is that he makes jokes. He makes a lot of puns and plays on words that are lost in the translation. Like the, the woman on the rock, Peter's mother-in-law. It's a pun in Greek. So it's a, a very interesting sort of thing. It's definitely the work of a very learned person. Is there a one-to-one correspondence between the, the Hebrew Zodiac and, and the, the Zodiac that we're familiar with? Yes, okay. uh, with the exception of Libra, I think. I think Libra is a later edition. 
uh, I mean, the, the Hebrew zodiac comes out of the Babylonian zodiac, and Libra, or, uh, yeah, Hebrew zodiac comes out of the Babylonian. The Babylonians didn't have Libra. That was a later Greek Roman edition, if I'm not mistaken. And they kind of separated out uh, Sagittarius and Scorpio. Right. Yeah. So. Or uh, Scorpio and Virgo. I don't know. Yeah, Scorpio and Virgo, because Libra's in between. So uh, that's pretty much what I have prepared. I don't know if there are more questions or if you want me to try and go through another sign to show the correspondences. I can do that too. I'm curious, you mentioned some of the criticism that the uh, concept of space. Ah. I was wondering if you could maybe enlighten us a little more to some of the more common arguments uh, detracting this theory. Well, first of all, there's Irenaeus himself back in the day who wrote a very big tract against it saying, no, this is a historical document. This is not supposed to be read as some sort of initiatory, magical um, sort of tract or guideline or guidepost. It is, you know, most definitely a record of the events, even if the events are not in order. And that's a point that either he makes or a later scholar makes. Mm -hmm. uh, more recently, uh, one of the criticisms I've seen of this book in particular is that, quote, it's just a retread of the solar cycle myth, unquote. You know, there's a very big, uh, or there has been a trend throughout Christianity to try and tie Jesus the Son with Solar the Sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they make a lot of correspondences like this, and the argument of most Orthodox, uh, not Orthodox, but uh, mainstream Christian scholars is that they're stretching. They're, they're, they're really reaching and stretching the evidence to fit where it doesn't necessarily. And I, I have to admit, I can see a little of that, especially in this book. He's making correspondences very fast, very loose, and not necessarily very well. Uh, his correspondences to the actual sign are limited. His correspondences to the decans are very strong or are made to fit, uh, especially in some of the, the other signs in the middle of the year when you're talking about uh, Capricorn and the governance that Capricorn is supposed to be all. Uh, Capricorn is not the individual, but the community and the group and the strictures that the community puts on things. He makes a lot of references to the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that section and how they're you know, made to look like fools by Jesus. But he doesn't necessarily tie it into any of the decans at all. There's no decan points at any point in this gospel, whereas in Aries he relies on the decans to sort of make part of his argument. Being a, a practical brother, mm -hmm. um, does he, does he go beyond this to say, to go into detail as to how this might have been used? If it was, if it was written to be tied into these processes to solve and do, uh, does he think that these were, they were exercises or meditations or path workings, or does he touch upon how, any conjecture as to how this might have been used? None. If, uh, if this is actually an initiatory document, it would have been an oral initiation, and we've lost it. And there could also be some parallels to the Jewish liturgical practice mm -hmm. and just looking at the holidays. Mm -hmm. Does he does he talk about the Jewish calendrics at all? No, yeah. not so much. He, he focuses mostly on the Greek because he has easily accessible Greek astrological sources. Yeah. And I don't know that he looked at the Hebrew astrological sources as deeply. The curiosity here as well is that given when Mark was written, or allegedly written, you wouldn't have seen more or less, and I don't like to use the word schism, I don't know what the word to use, and somebody please fill it in for me, when you see the beginning of Christianity moving away from 
Jewish temple tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say that it was based on just the destruction of the temple kind of thing, and I think the process was probably already in, uh, you know, in flow when the temple happened. It just was more or less fodder for you know a greater issue. The funny thing is, is but within the reading that I've done, it's more or less acknowledged that Mark is a you know an attempt that, where Christianity doesn't yet really truly exist at this point in time, unlike the other gospels. Uh, and that uh, he is writing, or whoever has written it, has written it as a Jew. And but that being said, I mean, isn't this? I guess what I'm stuck with is just the thought that so far, based on just what we've talked about, and assuming what you've said in terms of the criticism, that this is all wishful thinking on this guy's part. It's just sort of, you know, I think this is the way it is. Um, that's what would be that's know, what would be the purpose of Christianity as a you know a separate entity actually doing this? But yeah. see, here's the point, you're, you're, you're thinking of Christianity as a monolithic entity, mm -hmm. and it's not, not, as we prove, mm -hmm. just by our very existence. So there are different branches. There are people who are interested in astrology, they're interested in the myth of Jesus, and they want to tie the two of them together. There are always people who are syncretic and want to make things make sense mm -hmm. together. Uh, there are people who want to popularize it, and because they want to popularize it, they want to use the language that other people know. Their friends all know astrology. Why not bring the myth into astrology and say, hey, this is a very interesting idea. Masonry does it all the time. It takes Masonic symbols and puts them into a different framework to say, hey, this stuff has Masonic associations. Well, Sean? I, I would just add that, um, uh, you know, I don't think it's, it's un unlikely that, you know, communities or groups would want to use this or tie this in. I mean, to say, well, why would they just want to adopt this kind of mythological thing and tie it into what they understand as their history? But I mean, it, it's just as simple as, you know, our, our reaction to that, you know, might be not too different from the, uh, um, you know, from the Jewish communities that were freaked out when some other communities went with a high Christology. There's no difference, you know, in terms of their tying it into something, you know, bigger and higher. And to comment on... Uh, what the deacon was saying earlier, the, the, the separation, the hardcore separation between Christianity and Judaism uh, came later than the Gospels. Because, uh, I mean, that was, that, was a, that was a second century. John, John was when it really was, he, when you started to see it within the Gospels. Day. And even that was written back into it, at least <coughs> according to certain authors, where you have um, basically, you know, as an attempt to... Uh, uh, scripturally legitimize the present struggle. They write their present issue into a document purporting to talk about the past, right. to saying, "Look, you know, we had, you know, Jesus had problems with the Jews, right. uh, you know, and we were being, you know, we were being kicked out of the synagogues then, when actually it was happening now, and the now is is the second century." Okay. Well, what about so, in terms of uh, the arguments of you know, uh, the Ben? Ben oh, had his hand up, so I want to let Ben say something. Right. Also, um, the first um, heretic actually put to capital punishment very late in the game, 385, was Solianus, a Spaniard. Part of his heresy was, in fact, that you had to study astrology for part of the ascent uh, of the soul. And so, I mean, whether or not Mark um, glommed onto that very popular system, I can say at the very least 300 years later, other people certainly did. And, you know, other people still use it now. I mean, it's part of the Golden Dawn, is, you know, working through the zodiacal signs. And so, I mean, this is a current within mysticism in general, especially the esoteric, learned sort of mysticism, as opposed to, you know, a more intuitive sort. 
So, I don't know. I mean, whether or not this is actually true, I'm not going to say. You know, I can see arguments for it. I can see arguments against it. It's quite possible that people who were interested in this sort of thing used the Gospel of Mark in this way, while other people used it in other ways. We know that the, the Church Fathers used the Gospel in, in various ways. So, Does he uh, treat it all the, the, the sort of taking it apart and looking at Q? He does not mention there. He does not mention Q. Um, he takes the Gospels as finished works. And on, this, on, on the actual son, um, were you saying that there wasn't any kind of consensus among scholars that know about, about the link? Because I think it's pretty much, if it's not literature, you certainly have an epigraphical evidence. For example, um, of the sort of victus. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the criticism comes from certain mainstream Christian scholars, mostly on the Protestant end of things, rather than than historians. I don't know that a historian would go as far as Reverend Darlinson has gone in making these claims, but I don't think that they would necessarily discount them either. I mean, it's it's very much an interpretation of the text rather than a historical. You know, it's a drawing of correspondences rather than a historical. I mean, this certainly doesn't meet up historical citations. Um, he did actually go back to the Greek, though, and you know he has his own translation of Mark in the back. So, anything else? All right, then I'm gonna. Oh, go ahead. Okay, I was gonna take and turn it over to uh, Ben then, who has a different lecture for us on Enochian magic. Well, thank you very much to. Uh,